This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Picture this. You are a galaxy, a vast collection of stars, planets, dust, and hot gas. You're 13.6 billion years old. You know pretty much everything, and you've decided to tell all. That's the premise of astronomer and folklorist Moya McTeer's new book, The Milky Way, an autobiography of our galaxy. She tells the story of our galaxy and the universe from the voice of a sassy, sometimes depressed Milky Way. And along the way, we meet our galaxy's love interest and frenemies. We spend time with the bullying black hole at its center, and we meditate on the eventual death of stars. Yes, even our star. But why does our galaxy need to tell us all of this? And what can we Earthlings take away for our more mundane planetary life? Dr. McTeer joins me now to explain. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Ira. It's really good to be here. Oh, you're welcome. You've written this book as if our galaxy were, well, shall I say, a celebrity, right? A <laughs> character in a tabloid gossip. Your galaxy has a real attitude. Sure does. So if this is a person, right? If it's a person, who is the Milky Way? Ooh, I think that the Milky Way is your sassiest friend uh, who might be a little reluctant to join all of the friend group activities. Not a Beyonce, not a Lady Gaga, but someone with that definite queen energy. Oh, I like that. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, and you use this personality as a way to tell the story of the universe from the beginning to the end, really telling it really, really well. Thank you. Tell me, after all these people, all these other people have told stories about the universe and have written about them, why does your story still need telling? It's not my story. I read the Milky Ways. Uh, when I was proposing this book and trying to figure out how I wanted to write a book about the Milky Way, I was thinking about this very question. Who am I, Moya McTeer, to add my voice to people like Brian Keating or Michio Kaku, these people who have been talking about the universe already? And I realized I don't have that much to add, but the Milky Way sure does. So I wanted to use the science to craft a voice and personality for the galaxy. You go through uh, the different names that the Milky Way had over over the eons. How did you, how did it stick? The word Milky Way. How did that get to be its name? According to the International Astronomical Union, which is in charge of official names for all astronomy objects, the Milky Way doesn't have an official name. It's just called the galaxy. But in the West, we tend to draw a lot of our astronomy names from classic mythology, Greek and Roman mythology, which themselves are inspired a lot by Egyptian and Babylonian myths. So the name Milky Way probably comes to us from Greek mythology, and it has to do with this story where Hera, the goddess of marriage and the hearth, she was, unbeknownst to her, uh, forced to nurse baby Hercules. And when she looked down and realized that this was not her baby that she was breastfeeding, she pushed Hercules away, and that spurt of breast milk that came out of Hercules' mouth was the Milky Way. Uh, and that's that's where we get the word Milky Way from. And even the word galaxy comes from Old Greek for for milk, galaxios. Wow, that is a great story. What what were some of the other names it had from other cultures? 
There are so many. Um, I think in the book I talk about an old Finnish myth where um, the Milky Way is called the straw thief's way. There are people who called the Milky Way the way of the birds because it looked like birds were following the path of the Milky Way as they made their annual migrations. Uh, I think that if you look at myths about the Milky Way from around the world, you can see that people had very similar thoughts on it. A lot of it was this this drawn out path, this diffuse, milky looking path. Um, but there are also fun differences that different cultures put in their myths. Mm. And, and you should know because you're the only person who ever graduated from Harvard uh, majoring in both folklore and astrophysics. <laughs> uh, a little opposite ends of the spectrum. Just a bit. Um, at least that's what most people think when they hear it. But the more you start thinking about that connection, the more overlap you see between them. Initially, it's, oh, you're going to talk about constellations or astrology. But then when you think about it more, it's, well, maybe you can start comparing creation myths from different cultures around the world and see how they compare to our Big Bang, uh, like scientific understanding of cosmology. And then the direction I took it was just fictional world building and, and seeing how space has influenced our culture and our folklore here on Earth, because it, it really has. There's a lot of influence there. For example, give me one of the greatest influences. Mm. I mean, we have used the Milky Way to navigate, to keep time. So there are a lot of practical influences. But even today with modern astrology, which has roots in very practical, useful things, I think it's something like 70 million Americans read their horoscopes every day. So that is absolutely a connection we have. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we still name satellites and space missions and uh, and all kinds of objects we send into space after folklore. We sure do. Yeah, usually there are uh, like competitions. The IAU will often, or NASA will often ask the public what they think something should be named with a few options. And often those options are based on mythology because now there's kind of a naming uh, trend in place where we want to keep with that same pattern of having constellations and uh, comets and moons that we find in the solar system named after creatures and, and figures from folklore. Right. Let's talk about the Milky Way social life. <laughs> the Milky Way has friends and, yes, romantic relationships with other galaxies in its neighborhood uh, that we call the local group, mm -hmm. which is kind of true in real life. What's what's going on there? The Milky Way is just one of about 50 or so galaxies in this little neighborhood that, you're right, we call the local group. And most of those are tiny dwarf satellite galaxies that orbit around the Milky Way or Andromeda, which is the other really big galaxy in our neighborhood. When I was trying to think of the Milky Way as a person, it made sense that some of its neighboring galaxies would be really annoying to the Milky Way, and some of them <laughs> would be more endearing. And so uh, the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds, or Larry and Sammy, as they're called in the books, they make a lot of appearances. Larry is boring and gets on the Milky Way's nerves, but Sammy, the Small Magellanic Cloud, is more of what the galaxy would consider a friend. And then Andromeda is this long-term, epic, long-distance romantic partner that the Milky Way has been courting for billions of years. You call it an absolute smoke show, I believe it says <laughs> at one point. <laughs> right? Yeah, Andromeda's hot. 
<laughs> and 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 the language you use, it, uh, you said it was sassy. It certainly is. Do you do you as a communicator find that that language is appealing to a certain demographic you want to reach? I'm thinking about like younger people than normal astronomy or astrophysics uh, books. No, not really. I I don't think that there was much strategy in coming up with the voice of the Milky Way because I have received some feedback that it's a little too sassy for some people. But that's just what made sense for me at the time. If you have this being that has been alone for billions of years and much of its time is spent creating stars that it knows are going to die eventually, that it would be sassy and it would have kind of a chip on its shoulder. So I wanted to stay true to the science in that way. Mm -hmm. And the Milky Way is a three-dimensional galaxy. Mm. Emotionally, I mean, it's <laughs> depressed, right, as it reveals. Yes. When discussing the emotional turmoil that its famous black hole, Sag A star, creates for it, right? Mm -hmm. what, what do you have against black holes? <laughs> Uh, I was worried I would get this question. I, Moya McTeer, have nothing against black holes. <laughs> uh, but I was writing this book during the pandemic. I got the deal to write it just a week before lockdown happened in New York. And I myself was going through a lot of mental health struggles over the past two years. So, of course, that was reflected in the book that I wrote. And I thought that maybe it could help other people. Uh, throughout the, the book, the Milky Way learns to give its inner turmoil a name. It calls the, the black hole at the center of our galaxy Sarge. And once it gives it a name, the Milky Way can control more of what it does around the black hole. So it learns how to not let all of this this anxiety and depression get to it in a way that I have had to learn how to do that over the last couple of years. Interesting. That's really interesting. And and you do describe the physics of a black hole in terms that, that general folks like me can understand, and you do it very well, and I thank you for that. Thank you. Um, the, the Milky Way also thinks that it is the be-all of all <laughs> galaxies. You know, is there really such a special galaxy in the context of all the gazillions of them in our universe? No, not really. Uh, but have you ever been a big fish in a small pond? It's really easy to feel like you are the biggest, baddest thing out there. And in terms of the local group in this neighborhood that the Milky Way spends all of its time interacting with, yeah, it is the biggest and baddest. So that's what informs its personality. But if it went to a, a nearby galaxy cluster, like the Virgo cluster, for example, it would not be that big of a deal. Right, right. And the Milky Way takes credit for making scientists, I mean, astronomers, better at what they do <laughs> by developing new tools and techniques to study it. Of course, we wouldn't have this technology if the Milky Way weren't so interesting that we had to study it. Uh, some people call astronomy the oldest science, and the Milky Way is very proud that it was able to inspire that type of creativity and curiosity in humankind. And in that science, I find that you make a really interesting observation about how science, by definition, is usually conducted by experimentation, mm -hmm. but not astronomy. As you say, quote, some science is observational in nature, but not experimental, right? Absolutely. I have never touched a star. I have never touched a planet that wasn't Earth. And yet I got my PhD studying stars and planets and how they move around the galaxy. So it really is observational. We can't 
create control groups out of stuff that we make. Instead, we have to look out at all of the examples the universe has given us. Say we're studying uh, stellar evolution, how stars change over time. We have to find stars at different stages of their evolution to study. Uh, We can't just look at one star and trace it over its entire life because they live a lot longer than humans do. And it's pretty hard to make one in their laboratory. Yeah, exactly. Hard and like might be pretty dangerous. (laughs) And also the Milky Way wants to tell us about the end. I mean, the end of the universe, the the, the death of stars, the death of everything. And Mm -hmm. from our own myths about the end of the world, we have all different kinds of myths about uh, the apocalypse, right? How, How does the science of cosmological collapse relate to our own stories of creation and destruction and all these myths? Oh, I love that question. I think it's really interesting that we only kind of recently in this grand scale of humanity started thinking about the ultimate end of the universe uh, because we only recently had the technology to know what the universe was and how it could end. Uh, But even though that's a recent thing, humankind has thought about the end of the world for as long as we have thought about the beginning of the world. Um, I I love that we assumed that things would end because that kind of makes the time we have precious. I love the way that you can um, project our human lifespan and the fact that we will die onto the biggest things that we could possibly comprehend, like the universe, um, which will also die. So in a way that makes it just like us, but a, a lot bigger. Yeah, it gives us a sense of our own mortality. Yeah, that, and that's really important for us to have. Yeah, yeah. And, and the Milky Way is also sad about us because we're not telling stories about it like we used to. And and you uh, leave us with the directive to start telling new stories. Yeah. Where exactly where will these new myths come from? We are creating new myths all the time. There's a chapter in the book called Modern Myths, and I poke a lot of fun at science fiction, especially Star Trek. Uh, in an earlier version of the book, there was a there were a lot more digs at Star Trek than you see in this final copy. And well, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the digs about Star Trek and other creatures that we make up is a worry that humanoid-looking aliens on rocky planets with breathable atmospheres are going to give us the wrong idea about what lies outside of our own solar system. Yeah. And what to look for. Absolutely. Why should anything else in the universe look like us when there is an amazing diversity of planets out there that vary in size, the type of star they orbit? I think it's a lot more interesting to think about aliens that would evolve and adapt to the environments that they're in. And there are just so many fun environments out there. Like, why limit our imagination to stuff that looks like us? Finally, I want one last question about uh, the Webb Telescope. Uh, I, I'm sure you've seen these wonderful images. What What do you think was so special about the JWST images that you saw? I was blown away by how far we could see with JWST for the first time. We were looking at galaxies, some of the first galaxies to ever form in the universe, and that gives us a better understanding of where we came from and where we might go eventually. But I think it also gives us a a better sense of the scale of time in our universe. One thing that I really wanted to do in this book was get people to shift their perspectives and zoom out from their tiny scale, both in time and space. And the more we can learn about the vast expanse of the universe, the easier that will be for us. 
And as an aside, the Milky Way says that we need to rename the telescope. Mm. And who are we to argue with our own galaxy, right? (laughs) Yes. There has absolutely been a push in the astronomy community to rename JWST. The Milky Way is all for that because even though it's this big thing that doesn't really care about us, it also thinks we're pretty silly for judging people based on who they love or what they look like. So the Milky Way is all for changing the name of JWST. Well, that's a good place to stop. I want to thank you for for this book. It's a great book. Thank you very much for writing the book and for taking time to be with us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad you enjoyed it, and it has been a blast talking to you about it. Dr. Moya McTeer, astronomer, folklorist, and author of the book, The Milky Way, an autobiography of our galaxy. That's coming out next week. But you can get a sneak peek on our website. Read all about it at sciencefriday.com slash milkyway. 